it's um it's weird to see my other podcast set and then this podcast set and it's like a dueling of the dueling of the podcasts but um welcome back to make it make sense um which is just a, a place where i come together with people that i i like and their opinions i appreciate and we have some conversation about things in the world and try to make sense of them which is an endless list of topics because the world is ever confusing. So um, today I have with me the lovely Christy Smitherman. So Christy, tell us who you are, what you do, what's your story? Oh, I should have prepped a little bit. Um, well, I my name is Christy. I Lori and I have known each other, I think going on seven years now. So we've kind of been in this whole insurance whirlwind trip together, which has been great. Um, absolutely love my job. I guess who I am, I don't know, I'm a mom. I think that tends to define me the most. I've got three boys. They are 22, 20, and 17. So kind of single mom in it over here, um, raising them. And I have for a while, they are my pride and joy, love them to pieces. And just, um, yeah, besides that, I, you know, insurance agent, daughter, friend. I, I don't know. I don't know what really defines me, you know, mainly just, I think all of those things and, and I think so an amazing human. And I think you've got a, a very personal take on today's topic. So I appreciate yes. you kind of being vulnerable and, and sharing what, you know, might to some feel like, um, just something that they wouldn't share. So I appreciate you kind of being open and being vulnerable. So thank you. And it's, it's, still sometimes hard to talk about a little bit because I don't like to put certain people on the spot, but you know, my story is just as important as I guess his story. So, you know, if anybody listening that knows me, they, they may hear things, but it's just, it, it's important for me to share. And I want to be a resource to other women potentially who could be in this situation because it's not a fun situation to be in. Yeah. So without further ado, what we're talking about today is addiction, just addiction in general. I think every single one of us has been affected by addiction at some point in our lives, whether it was, you know, really close in our inner circle or it was more peripheral. Um, but it's, it's pretty astounding how much, how many people have some kind of addiction. And I think, you know, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or illicit or illicit drugs or, you know, food or pain or just all mm -hmm. of the things that people become addicted to is kind of wild. And, and, you know, I've always thought for myself, I said, you know, I don't really have like an addictive personality, which I think there is some truth and some untruth to that because, you know, I, I could smoke a cigarette and not, and like, just not the next day and it's fine. Like I don't crave it or die to have it. I don't in my adult life really consume a lot of alcohol. Um, but I definitely think that I, you know, have used food as a, a crutch and like kind of an addiction or like a something to kind of mask whatever was else was going on, which that is so at the heart of so many things where addiction gets started. So um, I don't know, it, it's just kind of, it's, it's interesting to delve into. So tell us about your experience as much as you want to share your experience with addiction. Well, the funny thing, and I never really thought about it this way, but when you were talking about just having addictive personalities a little bit, I, I will tell you, you know, I'm not an addict. I never have been, 
but there was a point in my life when my kids were little and I was a stay at home mom. And just, if you've done that before, just the chaos and whatever, where I would look forward to having a drink every day. So, and I didn't drink a lot, maybe one or two, but I just remember that, that stress that would just be sitting on my shoulders and, you know, you're dealing with kids, you got to cook dinner, you got to clean. And I was like, Oh, I just, I I can't wait till like five because I want to have like a glass of wine. And I usually would stop at like one because I just, I can't drink that much, but it's easy to, I think, fall into those habits when you have certain things that you aren't able to handle, whether it's alcohol or, or things like that. And I never really thought about that as an addiction, but the way that you worded it, I just remember being a really young mom and being stressed out all the time. And, you know, I wouldn't drink during the day. I, I wasn't going and having lunch with girlfriends doing brunch. I was mom, 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 mom. Then just the stress starts to hit at that bewitching hour, that four, that five. And I would like crave a glass of wine. So it's easy to fall into those patterns. Now, my main history with addiction is because of my ex-husband who was an alcoholic and the whirlwind that I dealt with that. Um, and the funny thing is, I don't know how much of my story, you know, but I remember my dad was also an alcoholic and, you know, he recovered, but when we first got married, I think I was triggered by someone drinking too much. And so it always kind of sat with me and I would be uncomfortable with it. And he never really liked to drink around me either. So he would, or, you know, throughout our entire marriage would always hide alcohol, but he wasn't good at dealing with and coping with the stress in life, whether it was, because for a long time too, he was the breadwinner, you know, and I was a stay-at-home mom. So whether it was finances or work or the stress of being a husband, being a father, he used alcohol to cope and you start using alcohol to cope. And then your body, like he was an actual, not the alcoholic who would just binge drink. His body became addicted to alcohol. So there were several times throughout our marriage where he needed it. And if he didn't drink, he would get violently ill. You know, we'd have to wean him off of it. We'd have to take him to the hospital. So I don't know if people also realize that how dangerous alcohol is. And it's more than just using alcohol to cope or forget, but your body does become addicted. And it's also one of the most dangerous drugs per se to actually withdraw from. So if you're having to withdraw from alcohol, you really do need to do it under a medical professional, whether it's, it's in the hospital or it's in rehab. Um, but when your body is that addicted to it, and I know there was a time and I think we were divorced at this point and somebody was telling me maybe his parents, but when he would wake up in the morning after sleeping off, whatever, you know, even if he's waking up at 10, 11, he immediately started throwing up. Like that's how addicted to alcohol his body was. So he, as soon as he woke up, had to start drinking to, cause his body couldn't handle not having the alcohol in his system. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just that part of the addiction was bad, but the other part of it too, is just the impact it has on his family had on me, had on our boys, had on his job, had on things like that. And, 
you know, for women out there who might be married to someone or dating someone or, you know, even men, if you're in a relationship with someone that drinks too much, maybe has, I mean, any sort of addiction, whether it's drugs, the one thing that I learned and it took me a long time to learn is there's not a dang thing that I can do to ever make them stop. I thought if I was a good enough wife, if I didn't bring stress to our marriage, if I loved him enough, if I cried, if I kicked, if I screamed, if I fought, if I begged, if I pleaded, you know, think about your kids. There were so many things I was constantly trying to do to quit him, get him to stop drinking. I used to go and find little bottles. He would hide little bottles of uh, Jim Bean everywhere and I would find them and I would throw them away, but then he would buy more. So then I would find them and I used to put <laughs> drops. I can't remember what it was like cayenne pepper. I, I was putting something in there that I was hoping, and I hope he couldn't tell that I had opened it. He did at some point, but I was trying to make him get sick. So maybe if he starts drinking and he throws up, then that'll make an aversion and he won't want to drink anymore. I mean, I did everything in my power to try to make him stop. I would hide his keys so he couldn't go buy more. Um, there was a couple of years where I just begged and pleaded for his dad to be at our house and stay with us all the time so that he could never just, someone would always be with him, you know? So, oh, well, well if he's going to go run to the store, please go with him. Like, you know, dad, please go with him. So he's just not alone. Um, then it took me years to realize that there was, there was nothing that I could do. And it's, it's defeating because you want your marriage to work. You want your family to work. He had a really good job. He supported us. We had a really nice life. We had a really nice home. You know, addiction isn't just for kind of the bums on the street or people that are uneducated or, you know, people that don't have anything better to do. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your, you know, status. It, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's going to hit you if it's going to hit you. And it was just really, is a really hard life to live. So if he, if you're saying that he, um, like, so he, he drank like in college recreationally. Right. And we both he, did. he didn't. He no, both yeah, did. no, we did. Yeah, we did. I mean, we so did our normal college at some point. Yeah. Right. Like the college experience, but like at some point he, you said he used it to cope. Like when did you, could you like start to see that onset or like, was it, was he hiding it immediately? No, he wasn't hiding it immediately. I think. And again, I also kind of came from a background of a dad that was an alcoholic. So if he would have been married to someone else, they may have not been as triggered with someone drinking, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I remember being pregnant with our middle child who is now 20. So this would have been 21 years ago. And the two of us got in a really big fight and he just left. He, and this was before we had our iPhones. I mean, there were cell phones, but you know, we just, he just got upset and left. And I was like seven months pregnant um, and being terrified that I didn't know where he was. And that was the point I think where I realized this really is an issue. Um, he ended up having a cell phone. He called at one point. Somehow we were able to figure out what he is. My parents came over, watched our oldest son. You know, we went and found him. He'd wrecked his car, um, you know, picked him up. My dad had the car towed. We went to counseling the next day. I called in sick to work. I was teaching. 
And I remember at that point, and again, this was 21 years ago, I was like, I think he's an alcoholic. And he was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And I remember the therapist is like, well, he could, um, I can't remember what he said. It, you know, I don't know if it was an alcohol addiction that he, you know, he said he may, maybe he's not an alcoholic. He's just dependent on it. Or, you know, he's trying to kind of weasel his way around it. But I think that was the first time. And that would have been, you know, five or six years into our marriage. I was 28 Ooh. when I first noticed it. But then it, then it would get better because he would have really long stints of being sober where he wasn't drinking. Um, and then we would get to a point where it was comfortable and we would be able to drink socially. But then I think when it started getting worse again, so that would have been 2002, 2003 when I was pregnant. And then when we moved into our house, our big house we were building, I feel like that's kind of when the S hit the fan and I realized how bad it was when he really was hiding things, disappearing, you know, drinking all the time. And it started impacting his, his job. And that would have been around 2011. So I was also terrified because he made the money. I didn't make a lot of money. We were building a really nice house out in Lucas. We were, you know, had an acre and a half. It was like my dream home. And I was scared. I was scared of what was going to happen if I left him, what, you know, how am I supposed to be a single mom with little to no income and support these kids? So I stayed. And again, I fought, you just, you know, you think if I love him enough, if I pray enough, if I, I would, I would invite some of his friends over that were, you know, in AA just, Hey, will you come talk to him? Some point, someone is going to say something that's finally going to get through to his head. That's going to make an impact. And change his trajectory on, you know, on what he's doing. I, I did everything in my power that I thought that I could. And that kind of bargaining though, is like, it's so common, right? It's like, it's easier to think that you're somehow in control of it and you can just change something mm -hmm. to really understand that there, there is no reasoning with this person. I mean, essentially no one can quit unless they want to quit. And, and for, for your experience, like, you know, watching some of it at kind of the tail end and knowing that there was no, no amount of rock bottom mattered and he right. was going to go right back to it. And, you know, like that's, it, it's so much bigger, it seems than the person themselves. I, I can't imagine and the only thing that I, like I said, the only thing I have to equate it to is like, I like food. I think I've used that to cope at different times in my life. And, you know, um, I, that's the only thing that I can equate it to, which is can be long-term just as dangerous, but you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have a lot of willpower, so I can understand where someone would just that monkey's on their back and they would just give into it. I, I mean, I, I can empathize with it. But I fortunately have never been in a situation where I'm like, you know, I've tried lots of different things and I've never become addicted. I, I was always afraid of never would allow myself ever to even consider heroin because the way people describe that is terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. That like the first time you ever use heroin, and this is, I've heard this multiple times. Um, it's like the best high you've ever had in your life. And then you spend 
the rest of your time getting high on heroin, chasing that high that you right. can never again achieve. Like that to me is so scary. Just mm-hmm. out of it, like to be that out of control. And I'm sure for your ex-husband, it was scary for him sometimes and probably is still to this day. You know, I had a conversation recently with um, a client who, you know, was openly an addict of, you know, whatever his, his vice was. And he said, if you're an addict, every, every addict out there will have some sort of like relapse. He said mm-hmm. it was just, and I don't know if that's factual or if that's just his experience, but that everyone would have some sort of relapse at some point. You know, I think the fact that they say, once you're an addict, you're always an addict is, is probably along those same lines. Like, right. Like you never, you never are cured of it. So like when he was going through this and you were so I'm sure just anti-alcohol, you hated the sight of it, I'm sure. Would you drink around him? Would you like allow any sort of alcohol in the vicinity? Would you avoid parties where there was going to be alcohol? Like what was? No. And the funny thing is like, we didn't have, we didn't keep alcohol in the house you know, and I didn't feel comfortable drinking around him, even though he would always say, you know, like, even if he was sober and he he wasn't drinking, he would say, Christy, I don't care. Like it doesn't bother me. I don't think that it did bother him. I think, and they're all different. It wasn't necessarily being around alcohol where he would want it and crave it. If he, if he were sober, he was using it so much more as a coping mechanism that when it, because he, he really wouldn't drink around me either. He wouldn't, you know, you hear some husbands and they come home and they're drinking beer and all this stuff, kind of stuff. He would drink in hiding. So he would either leave the house and sit in a parking lot or drink, or he would drink on the way home from work. He would drink at lunch. Like he never drank in front of us. So we never had it at the house, but we never avoided the situations because just being around his friends or being around coworkers drinking wasn't a trigger. Now I think it was hard for him to ever come to the realization that he probably should never drink again. He's like, I want to have a beer with my friend. I want to have a beer with my son. I want to have a beer, you know, when the kids get married. It's hard, I think, for alcoholics or maybe not an addict because an addict's not going to, you know, do cocaine or heroin (laughs) to celebrate, you know, a wedding or with their buddies. I think they would though. I I totally- Well, you're right, but it's just, it's not- you know, it's not social, like, not like alcohol is. They're, right. they're not open about it, but like, I still think yeah, that's right. celebration, you know? Yeah. But he just, he was like, I can't, I can't never drink again. He could go sober for a while. So that was another thing. He just, it was really hard for him to go to AA to admit that he was an alcoholic because he just, you know, he, for the longest time, he never really thought that he was, but he, he couldn't control it. I mean, it tore our family apart. It, you know, there were so many negative things that happened to us. Um, And I think too, a lot of people, again, alcohol seems to be, you know, there's so many, there's drugs, there's so many other addictions. I can admit I'm addicted to my phone, but I'm also cognizant enough when I've been on it too much to go, oh my gosh, Christy, like put it down, go do something else, like read a book, go work out, you know, but I know it's, it's easy to to be addicted, you know, to, to phones now, but he would use it. It kind of became a spiral. So he would be embarrassed or feel shameful on 
how this had impacted his family. So then he would drink to push all that down. So you've blown your family up. You've lost your job at some point. You've lost your house. You know, your wife wants to divorce you. Your kids don't want to talk to you. So you just keep drinking because you want to forget. So that's, it got to that point, you know, towards the end of, and even after our divorce, where you're just drinking to forget, you've literally blown your life to pieces. And that's how you cope. Because when you're sober, you know, whether it's sober from drugs, sober from alcohol, you have to face the reality of everything that you've done and everyone that you've hurt and how it's taken your life on a completely different path than it would be if you, this never would have happened. And so that would all come crashing down. Can you imagine to come down from that? I mean, I get it why you would always chase the high. I know like for, for me, and this is such a minuscule example compared to, but like the, really the reason that I don't really drink much these days, um, is because a version of that, like I I'm obviously like most of us, I'm a different person when I consume alcohol Mm -hmm. and I, I don't like feeling badly. So I don't like feeling sick. It's like the worst thing ever. I have too much to do to like not feel well. And so I don't like the next day, the feeling poorly, but Mm -hmm. I also didn't like the next day, how I had to like go through my phone. And I felt like I would have to apologize to people like for whatever that, that night prior. So I can only imagine how magnified that is when it's like your whole existence, like if you're and bigger things, right? Like I'm probably apologizing for stupid things I said, but like apologizing for like destroying your family. Like, can you mm-hmm. I can't imagine, I, I can imagine where that would be so crushing that you would just immediately take to drinking again. But, but mm-hmm. I think, I think in our society, what's really interesting is alcohol. So like mainstream and so a right. part of like you just said it, like for a wedding, he couldn't imagine not drinking if he was at a wedding. And, you know, my ex-husband similarly, and I wouldn't say that I, that he's an alcoholic by any means, but I just didn't like to be around him when he was drinking. And then mm-hmm. that was always his, his go-to thing was like, well, I'll just drink for an occasion. Like I'll just drink at the football game or the wedding. And I'm like, I don't like it at all. Like, I don't, I don't want that around at all. So, but it was, that was a justification for him. Or we had an, an, a friend once upon a time who was dealing with an alcoholic boyfriend and, and she herself was an alcoholic for sure. Um, and she would say, well, I just don't, I just like, I'm okay to drink with him as long as he's just drinking beer or wine, because mm-hmm. do you remember, like, cause he's mm-hmm. so violent when he's drinking whatever it was that he would drink, like, right. and I'm like, that's like the dumbest thing I've heard. Like, it just might take more of it to get him there, but like, it was her need to continue to go out and her social life revolved around drinking. So in turn, she wasn't willing to give that up. She just didn't want the ugly parts of his alcoholism. So she would make this like grandiose kind of gesture excuse of like, well, we're just only going to drink beer and wine and that's okay. Cause that's socially like what, how we're going to handle it. We're just mm-hmm. not going to drink hard liquor and that's going to be okay. Instead of just copying to the fact that they were total raging alcoholics, both of them. And in this like really toxic relationship. Right. But right. 
it, but it's, it, and it shows up for alcohol in so many different forms. Like I think of all of the moms, like kind of to your, your point earlier, mm-hmm. you would wait till the five o'clock hour. Cause then it was acceptable, right? Like drinking mm-hmm. five was not acceptable, but do you know how many moms like, and it's, it's all over Facebook. It's in all these mom groups. It's what I saw from my friend group. When I went home last time, it's like, well, I, yeah, I drink, I drink daily. Like I drink at least a glass of wine daily. And I'm like, and, and not only, not only that, like, Hey, to each his own, like, but I was the alien in the room because I wasn't drinking. They were like, what do you mean you don't drink? And I'm like, I I just don't, I don't like to feel bad. Like, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I just, it's not my jam. And they were blown away. And there was, I would say a level of kind of peer pressure around it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. man, when does the peer pressure go away? Cause I'm definitely like old enough to decide that this isn't what I want to do, but there was a level of peer pressure or like I was the alien in the room with three heads. Cause I was different than everybody else, but it's so ingrained in us socially that it's, it's almost kind of terrifying, like how prevalent it is, I guess. It is. I, I agree completely. And I mean, I'll even admit now, you know, I don't drink a lot at home, but when we go to dinner, you know, my boyfriend and I go to dinner, I almost always want to have a drink, but it's just, it's, we don't do it at the house, you know, and, but socially, it, I mean, it would be hard to just say, Hey, I don't want to drink anymore at all. Like I, I kind of get that because I do like having a drink if we're going out to dinner or, you know, we are, we have older kids. We want to go out with our kids or whatever it's, or I meet my girlfriends, you know, I do want to have a drink. And part of it is the social aspect, but just day to day, we hardly ever drink at home, you know, and there's alcohol, but I started to find that if I just, when we would go out, if I would just order a club soda with lime Mm -hmm. and people would think it was like a vodka soda or whatever, that it would just get me off the hook. Like I could drink that and I'm okay with it because it really vodka soda and, and just soda water really don't taste that different because, you know, so like it would just drink that and I would it would get the just get people off my back about mm-hmm. alcohol so but like how sad is it that I had to like succumb and right. way to like just not participate in it. and again I I've n- like nothing against anybody who chooses to drink and I and I'm not saying that I never drink I just don't choose it most of the time and I really prefer to just feel good the next day especially at this age I mean if I, if I really drink now, I am done for a couple days. I'm probably going to be kind of worthless. I don't, I don't right. know how Lori of yesteryear in college survived. I mean, just night after night after night of like, you know, lots of alcohol consumption and poor health habits. And I just, I don't know how that worked, but I don't, I don't snap back like a rubber band, like I once did. So that's really my reason for it. But you know, I think what was interesting about just researching alcohol in general is how I kind of lose sight of the fact, like I, I, the only crime that I think about really being associated with alcohol are DUIs or like death, vehicular manslaughter, Mm -hmm. you know, which is horrific. And I think it was like, 
40,000 deaths a year or something. It was the, the statistic was pretty astounding. But what I what I never have really thought about is how much there's an increase in violent crime period because of alcohol, which I've just never thought about it. But like, I mean, many, and I think this one comes to mind, which as being obvious, like many domestic violent situations happen because of alcohol. That one makes sense. Mm -hmm. I could have gotten there, but like just any kind of violent crime and or homicide, oftentimes alcohol was at the root, which Mm. is wild to me. Like I just, it makes sense now that I've, that I think about it, but it's not something I would have like just come up with without doing this research or really sitting and pondering it, but it's kind of terrifying. But I think, and the reason that's given is because alcohol clearly lowers your inhibition and it makes you make dumb decisions. And that part I can cop to like, yes, dumb decisions have been made on my part when alcohol was involved. So I get it. But I, I guess even for like, I'm thinking about robbing this store and now I'm drunk and it sounds like a good idea. Like that's pretty common. So that's funny I, too. Cause you, you, you're not in your right headspace. I, I right. think you'd be a lot better burglar or robber if you were sober, you know, well, I think, to, yeah, you'd probably be less clumsy and you'd be more, right. agile, but like, I, I don't know, I guess to that, it, I mean, Hey, it's liquid courage, right? Mm. I mean, it's like, we talk about liquid courage and other, you know, go talk to that guy here, have some liquid courage. But I guess it's, it probably, if, if you're, you know, you have a propensity to the, for this to be your thug life, then like that will get you there. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. So let's, let's talk about just addiction in general in the U S because this to me is not surprising but it's kind of shocking and terrifying that all addiction, whether it's an illicit or licit drug is greater in the U S period. End of story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether it was legitimately heroin, cocaine, amphetamines, marijuana, ecstasy, hallucinogens, or alcohol, all of it. Now the, the, I should say, in of illicit drugs, like in America, there's 35% of adolescents cop to having used an illicit drug in their lifetime, mm-hmm. only 18% in Europe. However, wow. in Europe, alcohol and smoking are a big thing, which doesn't surprise me because it's so prevalent. I mean, you can't, if you don't smoke in parts of Europe, they look at you like you're the alien, right? And they mm-hmm. serve wine with most meals, the kids get wine with dinner. So it's just a very different culture. However, um, I thought that it was pretty interesting just how much bigger like usage and dependency are in the U S and I wonder what the correlation is. Like, is it, we're all trying to keep up with the Joneses? Is it social media and how we worship like material things? Is it the pressure of our society and the pressure to keep up that leads to this kind of use? I mean, like what, what are your thoughts? Well, I feel like it's always been a bit of an epidemic, even when we were younger, you know, the say no to drugs and the all, all that sort of stuff. And and, right. Yes. But social media wasn't prevalent then it didn't even exist so I 
I think social media probably has exacerbated it and made things worse because there is this pressure. But then also, if you're going to be addicted to something, you can be addicted to social media, you can be addicted to your phone. So now you have an addictive personality and maybe it's easier to fall into addiction with, with other things too. But I don't think it's the root is social media, you know, in other countries, drinking isn't as taboo, even though it's very social here, you know, in the European countries, it's, it's integrated into them when they're, when they're younger and over here, which I still don't want my young child drinking, but it's like, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. So it's a little more taboo. So if people do start drinking earlier, maybe they start hiding it. And I also, part of me thinks that if you're going to be an alcoholic or an addict for some people, it's, it's in your brain. There, there's nothing you can do about it. Cause I used to go to Al-Anon meetings, which is for loved ones of alcoholics. And I really learned a lot. And there was, um, my sponsor in there. Um, she was telling me she had all three of her kids were, were either alcoholics or addicts. And one of them was pretty young and he was at a friend's house and had a drink. And that one drink, that one drink, like flipped something in his brain and he was addicted to whether it was out, I think it was alcohol from that point on. So I do think some people it's, you know, ingrained in you, it's part of you. There's, there's no way to get around it. And you're not going to figure it out until you drink. And then you've got to learn how to, you know, cope. Um, but when you start, if we're always hiding it and getting on to people and you start hiding it again, it's kind of that shame cycle a little bit, or maybe it's exciting to try to sneak around and, and not be caught and, you know, hide all that kind of stuff from your parents. So you get that high and that dopamine kick from, from that. So I, I don't know if that's accurate, but that could be part of what's fueling it as opposed to, again, a European country, you're 13 here, have a glass of wine at a wedding or have a glass of wine at dinner. It's it's not taboo. Well, it's, it's not like they don't do it there. They don't, mm-hmm. it's not like they don't use drugs. It's just that our addiction right. rate is much higher. You know, and I think genetics obviously plays a lot into the conversation. I, they say that 40 to 60% of a person's risk is their genetic makeup. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that sounds like exactly what happened with that person who had the one drink and then it just kind of tipped everything. But, you know, I think that environmental factors are definitely a part of it. So if you have a chaotic home life, if there is peer pressure to do so, like all of those things definitely come into play. Um, but it, but there has to be some correlation with how much pressure there just is on us in the United States. Like we're everything to the nth degree. Right. And so there has to be some correlation of attempting to cope with that. I also think it, it would make sense why we have such a higher statistic in amphetamine, amphetamine usage mm-hmm. because of this look like an Instagram model, have enough energy to make millions, go out, go, go, go party, have this lifestyle. Like, you know, the amount of people that are taking amphetamines that are not really necessarily in need of a amphetamine prescription is astounding which probably also speaks to the fact that we're like, we over-medicate as a society, like every town, any city USA, like you can 
you you can ask enough questions and get, find the doctor that you can go to that will prescribe anything. Mm-hmm. That's kind of terrifying. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case in all countries, but I definitely know in the country we live in, that's a reality. Um, do you think just, would you think naturally, because we always hear about marijuana being a gateway drug, right? So cannabis being a gateway drug, that's, I've heard that my entire lifetime. Would you think that the addiction to marijuana would increase with legalization? I I don't really know. I've never like done marijuana, so to speak. Like I, I don't really understand it so much. It's not something that's been prevalent where I've known people that, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm not against it, but I don't, who, who use it. So Honestly, I don't really know if I have an opinion. I think old Christy would have been like, don't do it, don't do it. It's illegal. It's a gateway. But the more I learn about it, I, I'm not sure, honestly. Like, I don't feel like I have a very good opinion well, on so that. When, when alcohol was first legalized, would you think that the consumption would increase with its your availability right so it's it's kind of taboo um i i actually do think consumption is going to increase because there are some people that aren't going to do it because they don't want to break a law and it's not just oh it's exciting it's taboo like i'm gonna sneak around and do it now it's legalized it's it's easy to access so I'm, i'm gonna stop i do think if something is more readily available consumption would increase so you know it takes the stigma off of it a little bit but Interestingly, well, I mean, I definitely feel the stigma part where marijuana is concerned because you can't open the internet and not see people just like blatantly being very open about their cannabis consumption, which mm-hmm. again, his own. I just, I, you know, I still come from the school of thought that some of that private stuff should stay private. You shouldn't, you know, and these, these kids these days don't understand that when you put it on the internet, it is literally there forever. So if you mm-hmm. someday decide to run for office, this is going to resurface. You know, I was right. watching something even about Barack Obama and I, I didn't realize this in his president presidency that as he was running for president or after, I, I'm not sure when it happened, but he admitted marijuana and cocaine usage as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I never knew this, which it doesn't make me, like or dislike him any differently it just i agree i I just think it it makes him relatable because if you've lived through your teen years that you can't probably unless you're homeschooled and really are never allowed to leave the house there's just not a way that you cannot you can make it through that adolescence and not have been offered some kind of illicit Mm -hmm. drug along the way right but um there was a study in CU Boulder today. So I feel like being that it's a Colorado, um, right. you know, may have some something to do with the study and, and what they found. But they took 240 sets of twins and studied them all through their adolescence to see if living in, because half of them lived in states where it was legalized and half of them lived in states where it was illegal to see if it would, would increase recreational usage and it did not seem to have any impact in whether or not they were more likely so just the availability mm-hmm. of it did not increase their okay. likelihood to 
use the drug and to become addicted to the drug. So I do think that there would, it would seem logically that there would be some sort of um, attraction to it. You can't, you always want what you can't have, but it turns out that it didn't really have, and these 240 sets of twins, it did not have any impact on whether or not they were going to use cannabis. I couldn't really find information as easily about alcohol because that prohibition was, you know, right. So long ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I I think, go ahead. I think for the people that end up being addicts, it's more whether it's available or not, because even if it's illegal, if you want it, you're going to find a way to get it. It's more for the feeling that they get and that high that they're chasing or, you know, the, what they need when they're drunk and the need to keep feeling that way. So whether it's just the addiction, because I like the way I feel and I want to feel it again, or whether it's alcohol or heroin or something else where your body actually becomes physically addicted to it and you can't, you can't go day to day without it or even addiction for our phones you know, it's the dopamine hit, whether we're playing a game or we're looking at Facebook or whatever it is, it's just chasing that little dopamine that we're getting from this, you know, to fill whatever it is we need to fill. The addiction to likes, like to attention, <clears throat> um, like that is definitely a concern with social media. I can see it in my kids and like, you know, that, that whole 10 year olds at Sephora thing. That's like <laughs> funny and on TikTok Now my 10 year old is obsessed with Sephora and thinks she, and I, and I say to her all the time, like, Isadora, you have perfect skin. Like people would kill to have mm-hmm. your skin right now, you know, no pores, absolute perfection. What are you doing? You don't need a $38 moisturizer. Like what mm-hmm. is, what is happening? But I digress. She's just, she is that person that they're joking about these days, the 10 year olds at Sephora and, you know, but that the, the need to have likes is an addiction. I I can feel myself. I can feel it in my body now that social media is so prevalent and your phone is always there and whatever that I will get more anxious if I don't have something to do. I I can feel me Me too the ADD setting in, like the need <clears throat> to have something to entertain me. So it, I, like, I, you know, I think we're all subject to it, but mm-hmm. I don't know we're, we're so reliant upon technology with our career. I don't quite know how to make it better, but I can feel it happening. So if an addict can feel it happening when they're becoming addicted to a substance, like it's kind of terrifying, you know, and, but even being cognizant of it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do anything to stop it. You know, like you have to make drastic changes to stop it. Right. And I think about, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. So we were just sitting on the couch watching TV, you know, had dinner and um, we put a movie on or a show, but even though the show or the movie's on and I was like, Ooh, this is kind of cool. I should pay attention to it. I still have my phone and I'm cognizant. I'm like, why am I flipping through Facebook? Like, why can't I just focus on, on one thing? And so I do, I, I, I notice it. And it's something that it's simple as putting my phone down, 
but I don't put my phone down. So again, with the addict, when even they're physically addicted to something, they know better. They know they should be doing it. It's, it's hard. It takes a lot of will and discipline to, to do it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's an ever increasing issue. I can see it happening in my own life. And, and it's not like, you know, I think the propensity is to say that because it isn't drugs or, you know, harmful to my body. So it still is really harmful to Mm -hmm. your body. And, and I think, you know, we're raising these little people who are coming up addicted to their, to the internet and to their hundred percent. Like my kids, if there are times when they'll say like, oh my God, the internet went down for like a couple yeah. minutes and they'll like completely lose their minds. And I'm like, look, people, I live through dial up. Like I know what it's like to not have the internet. Like this is a few minutes, but they just, everything is so dependent upon the technology that they can't even see through it. So it's like mm-hmm. even more societal pressures to push people down a path of alcohol and drug use. And it's really kind of scary. And I, I just don't even know at this point how we free ourselves from it, truly. Right. And- it, it is an epidemic. And it, is, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is, is there a way out? I, don't, I mean, it just it yeah. doesn't feel like it, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I didn't do, I did not look up the correlation between addiction and technology and social media and like our younger people get, I mean, that would be an interesting next step to this is, is, is there, are there studies? I'm sure there are that say that we are more or less susceptible because of all of this, you know, the immediate gratification Mm -hmm. have alcohol delivered to you. Like you just, all of it is like, it's kind of scary. Um, it's, it's a little bit terrifying, but you know, I don't know. I I don't know the answer. I, I was surprised to learn like by age and versus ages and genders, like when addiction kind of starts, mm. um, you hear about, you, you always think like only child actors are the ones that are like doing drugs and getting drunk, but it, it that's, that's not the case at all. Um, so here, here's the breakdown age 12 to 17, one in 25 or 992,000 are addicted. Wow. 18 to 25, one in seven. So that's a pretty drastic jump. Five, wow. 5.1 million. Um, over 26, it was 13.6 million Americans have an addiction to something, um, to some illicit drug or alcohol. Um, the elderly, which is again, I never before this would have even considered their elderly people that have addiction problems. I don't know. It just doesn't, you think of like the cute grandma in the nursing home and you just mm-hmm. equate, it doesn't compute, but there are more than a million elderly that have addiction issues. Now, I think we always think about, um, people like home, the homeless population. And we talk a lot about how a lot of them have actual mental health issues and that's how they end up on the street. And that's why that's so tragic, but really there is a large 
correlation, you know, 8.5 million of a total of 19.7 million in the U.S. who are addicted, 8.5 of them have both mental health and substance abuse problems. Mm -hmm. So there is definitely a correlation between that. I think, again, genetics would play a part of it. Um, teenagers and people with mental health disorders are more at risk than other populations. So I don't know why the, the teenager thing, it's probably just the angst of being a teen and like mm -hmm. all that comes at you and the hormones and the uncertainty and the not really knowing who you are yet. Mm -hmm. um, but people with mental health issues, like it makes sense that they correlate. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of terrifying, like how it shows up. Well, teenagers yep. too <clears throat> don't have the brain capacity to cope with certain situations. They don't, they don't understand. They've lived in a bubble. Their parents have taken care of them. They have their food. So if there's adversity, you know, coming at people late teens, early twenties, they've never had to deal with it or face it. Then maybe that's where the addiction or the drinking or something could start because they've never learned how to overcome these. When I thought about the... <laughs> the correlation of mental health to substance abuse. Of course, I, you know, drew a, a natural line connection to suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, would it would stand a reason that people that are suicidal probably have some sort of addiction um, because they're, they're in such a state of trying to cope or deal with their, their daily life and, and find a reason to go on. Um, but over 50% of suicides are associated with drug and alcohol dependence. So I think I would have probably thought it was higher, I guess. I would have assumed it would be higher. Um, but even just that it's over 50%, like more than half of them, like you can see that that like alcohol and drug use is their their gate their gateway to potentially terminating their life. Like that's sort of true. And they're also, I think with that, a couple things, you're more likely to, even if suicide terrifies you, you're more likely to do something to yourself if you have lost your inhibitions, whether it's drinking or the drugs. And also I know for some alcoholics, it's the shame. Like I'm in this spiral. I don't know how to get out of it. I've tried to stay sober. I've tried AA. I've tried rehab. Nothing works. And it is, it, it, but there's also that depression that kind of goes along with it. It's their only way out. It's their only way out of the pain that they're feeling because alcoholism, it just, alcoholism isn't just someone being lazy or whatever. I mean, there is pain, there is shame. There is, there's so many emotions that go along with it. And it's, it's hard to overcome because that's something you have to live with now for the rest of your life. You know, whether Maybe you did it for a short time and you got over it, but if it has spanned five years, 10 years, whatever, and it has had a negative impact on a single person that you care about, you're going to carry that shame and it's hard to get past sometimes. Not everybody can actually do that. I remember I used to think, cause I used to pray so hard. I'm like, God, this is not the path that you have, you do not want me to get divorced. You do not want me to live in this. Like, I know that I thought he was kind of putting us through this so that we would have a story. I used to have this grandiose thought that my ex-husband would get sober and then, and I stuck by his side and I supported him through all this. 
And then we would have a story to tell. Like we would be able to be a resource to other couples dealing with it. And I, I believe that to my core for the longest time. And it's one of the reasons it was so hard for me to let go because I was convinced he was going to get through it, get over it. Our marriage was going to be stronger. Our family was going to be stronger and look what we overcame. And now we can help other people who are going through that. And I had to let that go and realize it's not our story as a couple, but it's my story as his ex-wife and as a mother to be supportive and like any advice I would have to a woman going through it as hard as it is to leave. And it, it is hard because you feel responsible. You're scared of what's going to happen to them and they'll threaten. Well, if you leave, I'm going to do this. You have to let all responsibility you feel for that human. You have to let it go. It is. If something happens to them, it's not your fault. If they do something to themselves, it's not your fault. If their life spirals out of control, they lose their job, they, they get in a car accident, whatever, it's not your fault. You can only control yourself. And if you're a parent, you know, and protect your children. It, and it's hard to let that control go because you think you can save the person and you can't. Man, yeah, and that's that's so brave of you. Like I, you know, I got to watch the tail end of your journey through all of that. And I think on the other side of it, like if you are dealing with someone who's is in that situation and they haven't yet been able to to free themselves and like it, it could be very frustrating as the friend, right? Like mm-hmm. how do you not see this? It's never going to change. Like how many times are you going to do this? I think you just have to understand. And I think this is probably a lesson on both sides of it. People will do things in their own time. Mm -hmm. And all you can do is decide if, you know, that person is important enough to you to live with them through it, but beating your opinion over their head is not going to, is not going to make a difference. You beating your opinion over his head was not going to make a difference. People do things in their own time and you're either along for the ride or you're getting off the the Ferris wheel. And, you know, those are decisions we all have to make for ourselves. but becoming frustrated and trying to, you know, shame them into doing it your way is never going to work. It's just going to make right. them dig their heels in more because mm-hmm. they have to do it in their own time. So I think what a great transition actually and segue into like this last question that I have for you that I ask everyone at the end of these shows is, you know, if you could give your, and it can be in relation to this topic or not, but just in general, if you could give yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice that might've changed it all, like, what would that be? So this is going to sound a little off topic, but this is a piece of advice I wish that I had taken into consideration and also a piece of advice I give to any young woman. Um, when you get in a relationship, when you get married, whatever, I don't care how much you love that human, how much you think this is marriage for life. Nothing can ever split all apart. Don't ever become financially dependent on another human because that's one of the reasons I stayed as long as I did, because I thought I had no way out. I was so ingrained and financially dependent on him. And I mean, honestly, Lori, if you look at it, it's kind of when I started making money is almost what allowed me to escape. So I think it's important for a young woman, even if she's going to stay home and take care of her kids to just still have something on the side 
and it sounds so terrible because it sounds like I'm just like totally dumping on, on marriage. But I think even on these Facebook pages, when I read a woman's like, I need to get divorced. I have no money. I need to get divorced. I need to leave my husband. I have no money. So always be doing something for yourself. Don't become so ingrained in your family and your husband that your whole world is wrapped around being that wife or that mother. Keep a little side job, keep something, but just don't stay financially dependent on someone. Because if you do come into a situation, whether it's they're drinking, they're a narcissist, they're cheating, whatever, and you need to get out, you're stuck. And then if hopefully your marriage is wonderful, like it should be, you'll just have a little bit of side money. But that's what I tell, that's what, that's what I tell young women. Just don't be financially dependent on them. That's great. I think that's a great piece of advice. I think not just the the money, just the like, you know, autonomy, the mm-hmm. something for yourself. It's just, that's so important. So, right. um, well, I so appreciate you like spending this time with me and, and again, being vulnerable. And I know that it's personal. It's, it's, it was, um, it's great to see where you landed, where you like, where you are now, what, having watched you go through, what was the toughest thing probably in your mm-hmm. life. And, um, so I just appreciate it. I appreciate your candor. Well, thank you. I am very happy to be on here with you. And thanks to anyone who listened. Mm -hmm. And if you like these conversations, you know, subscribe, like, do all the things that will give my dopamine. Um, (laughs) So um, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for being on Make It Make Sense and um, love you, friend. All right. Love you too. Bye. Bye.